Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Mark Thompson. Mark is a senior research fellow at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. He's the head of the socioeconomics unit and has been since April 2020. And he is the author of, of a whole host of different publications pertaining to uh, sustainability, political uh, nature of the kingdom, the economics of the kingdom, the the future of Saudi Arabia. He's done a lot of work on, on young Saudis and he's the author of an absolutely wonderful book that was published by Cambridge in, uh, in late 2019 titled Being Young, Male and Saudi, Identity and Politics in a Globalised Kingdom. It's absolutely fantastic and I'm delighted that Mark is here to join us and talk about some of these things today. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, first of all, for the invitation. I'm, I'm delighted to be here too. It's a pleasure. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed your book and uh, and indeed all of the other um, the other work that you've been doing on on Saudi and and the the dramatic changes that the kingdom has been going through. So I'm really looking forward to to chatting with you today, Mark. But as um, as always, I must begin by by asking you what 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 piqued your interest in 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 the kingdom. What got you over to the kingdom in the first place? Um. <clears throat> Well, I, I'd never had any particular interest in Saudi Arabia, although I had been interested in the Middle East because I used to come to the Middle East um, when I was much younger because of my father's job as an international banker for the Standard Chartered Bank. <clears throat> so I had been to various places in the Middle East, such as Jordan. Uh, so so it's, that had always been there. Um, and um, I had been working in Asia for a long time. Uh, and then after the East Asia economic crisis, it sort of forced me to leave. <clears throat> and I got a job working in Oman for um, the Ministry of Education at a, a teacher training college in Niswa. And um, it was whilst I was there, I had various colleagues who had worked in Saudi Arabia previously and who never tired of telling me that I should never come to Saudi Arabia um, and what a terrible place it was. And I suppose that sort of made me think, okay, if it's so terrible, I wonder why. I think I'll go and find out. And um, so I got my first job um, and in the kingdom and came here at the very beginning of uh, January 2001. Uh, I was working in Jeddah. And um, I loved, I loved it as soon as I arrived. Um, I don't know why something just sort of clicked, and it was like this is, I, this is nothing like I sort of expected. And then my my, I was working for Saudi Arabian Airlines actually as a teacher, and um, my then boss, um, I'd been here a couple of weeks, came to me, and they were conducting. Um, an exam for ground Saudia ground crew all across the kingdom. And he said to me that they needed somebody who could basically go anywhere in Saudi Arabia at a moment's notice uh, for an indeterminate length of time. It could be a day, it could be a morning, it could be a week um, to sort of to sort of uh, to give these exams. And, and he said nobody else is really nobody else wants to do it. 
um, because everybody wants to just stay on the compound, I suppose, mm -hmm. um, would you be interested? And of course, I said, yes, I'd love to do it. And so that first nine months that I was here until, of course, 9-11, I actually traveled the length and breadth of Saudi Arabia from, you know, tiny places like Shurora on the Yemeni border, you know, all the way up to Aguriat in the north on the border with Jordan. Um, but, but, you know, to Kasim, uh, I spent two weeks in Asir, in Abha, my first time there. So I went all over the kingdom and, and I, I realized that I knew nothing about this country, this amazing country. I knew nothing about its diversity, its different landscapes, its different cultures, different types of people. And it was just... <laughs> completely fascinating and 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 i you know I, I i fell in love with saudi arabia basically and then of course in september 20 years ago almost um 9 11 happened uh and that shifted everybody's perceptions about the kingdom and mm. uh um things got quite difficult here and i had to leave temporarily but i saw not just the you know the sort of the uh, react post 9/11 the reaction to Saudi Arabia but of course the reactions to to the Arab world the wider Arab world in general and to the Muslim world and and um, you know that sort of got me even more interested um, in 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 the kingdom um, because I saw the you know the the misconceptions the outright lies. Um, that were being sort of used to to justify the war on terror and uh, to to sort of to blame Arabs and Muslims in general for what had happened. So, um, <clears throat> you know, to cut a long story short, I it was that that prompted me to go back to university um, to do my second master's degree in Middle East policy studies. Um, and I went to the Institute of Arab and Islamic Studies in Exeter University because they have strong ties to Saudi Arabia, um, um, partly, of course, because of Professor Tim Niblock. And um, and I, I, I wasn't sure whether I'd never studied political science in my life before. Um, I'd always been interested, but I'd never done anything academically. And I thought, well, I'll go and see if this is something that I enjoy or not. Although everybody thought I was crazy and was saying to me that, you know, you can't go back to university at your age because I was 44 <laughs> then, you know, as, as though education suddenly stops, you know, when you're sort of 23 or something. Um, but I went back and I was very fortunate to work with people, obviously, like, you know, Professor Niblock and Professor Gerd Nonneman. And, um, and um, you know, they sort of said to me, well, you know, you should do a PhD because I am. Um, you know, I, I, I was working on Saudi Arabia when I was doing my second master's, but they said do a PhD. But I actually came back to the kingdom for a while to think about whether I wanted to do uh, a PhD. And I was working for the Saudi Arabian National Guard at the time, which in itself was an extraordinary experience. And that's when I really sort of thought, no, you know, I, I actually really do want to do this. And I really basically want to dedicate you know, my life, as it were, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and that's what happened. And here I am. <laughs> Amazing. Well, it's quite the journey from from Saudi Airlines to uh, to where you are today in King Faisal uh, Center. Well, I, there's so much to to pick up on 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 this and i mean we could spend spend the entire podcast talking about that initial nine month period where you were traveling the kingdom or um or the, the years that followed while you were there but if i can just pick up on one thing that you said please i mean you've just said about dedicating your life to studying the kingdom I mean, what was it about 
about Saudi Arabia that that got you so passionately hooked onto this uh, onto this topic? I mean, it's very clear from from listening to you speak and your your reading your work. You have a, a love and a, a real strong passion for the kingdom. But I wonder where where did that come from? What is it that that really spoke to you about the kingdom? The people, right? I think um, people. I mean, I I can say this with my hand on my heart that ninety nine percent of my experiences with Saudi and all the years I've been here have been positive. Um, the hospitality, the the kindness, the the openness, the uh, the fun as well. I mean, um, you know, this is a, having fun even in the old days of Saudi Arabia was still very much part of life in the kingdom. Um, yes, and and just I I think seeing seeing such a fascinating, diverse country kingdom um, and and under, and realizing that that actually this is this is this is a obviously a young kingdom in terms of its age. Um, not, and not just his population, but it's increasingly going to be a more important country uh, for many reasons, not least, of course, because it's the home of Islam. And yet it's very misunderstood and, um, you know, it gets a very bad press. And, uh, and I just felt that I wanted to do something to sort of redress that and I wanted to sort of I wanted to do something that sort of gave a more balanced and more objective picture of of, 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 of a country that I love very much well I think you've you've successfully achieved that um, dispelling so many of the the lazy dare I say orientalist tropes about the kingdom with your mm-hmm. your passionate critical but persuasive sympathetic writing on the on the kingdom, so I, I would say you've you've certainly succeeded with your your goal there, Mark. Can I um? Oh, sorry, please. No, no, please go ahead. I was just going to say, can I um? Can I ask you to, to tell us a little bit about this PhD then? Um, was it with with Tim and and Gerd? Did you say supervising you? Uh, um, Tim Nablock was my internal examiner. Right. Okay. And uh, and my supervisor was uh, Professor Gerd Noniman. And um, which was, I was very fortunate, obviously, sure. to have him as the supervisor and to have Tim as a, an internal. And uh, my PhD actually looked at at that time when I was when when and when I was work because I was actually working here in Saudi Arabia and doing the research here. And I realised that, that this was obviously during the King Abdullah era. And I realised that nobody had really paid very much attention to the national dialogue process that was initiated by King Abdullah. Um, and it was just sort of dismissed as always oh, just a talking shop. It does it doesn't really mean anything. And I sort of felt, well, hang on a minute. That's a very simplistic way to look at something that's actually quite new. Um, mm. And there must be more to this than 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 just this sort of oh, it's just a talking shop. Um, and so I, you know, that I spent. Um, about a year sort of doing sort of about 120 interviews across the kingdom with not just people who had taken part in the national dialogue process but critics of the national dialogue process a whole variety of people um to sort of look at what the not just the direct but the indirect impact of of the the establishment of this process was Um, i find what's interesting of course now 
is all these years later, of course, the national dialogue, nothing has happened with the national dialogue since about 2010, although the National Dialogue Centre still exists. Um, but it hasn't done anything for many, many years because in a way it became redundant, especially after sort of social media uh, took off in 2009. But I find it very interesting now, and recently I've been actually been, actually been revisiting the, that that first, which is my PhD thesis, which obviously became my third, first book. And I've been revisiting that. What I find fascinating is actually the seeds of a lot of the things that we've seen happen were planted during that time. And that, you know, King Abdullah was responsible for doing that. And so today we see, you know, when we talk about Vision 2030, when we talk about societal transformation, um, you know, a lot of this is because of what happened there. For example, the King Abdullah Scholarship Program, which of course is, you know, now now the kingdom is getting the benefits from that. You know, mm. as as all of these graduates, you know, have come back to the kingdom and have fed into to the, the system, and indeed have created a sort of intermediate stratum within. Uh, the government or within 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 in the private sector as well that didn't exist in the past but that now does yeah it's it's fascinating hearing you reflect on that because the the speed at which the kingdom has has changed uh, from the, the the 20 years ago that, that you first arrived but then also the the period of doing your your phd um if i'm right in thinking it was 2008 to 2012 um, That's right. The the speed of transformation then this this creation of a of a whole new stratum as you say is is huge. So I wonder if you could just maybe elaborate on the the process of change at that point. Given that that other neighbouring states in the region were were enduring their own dramatic periods of of change through the the Arab uprisings, the Arab Springs, mm. and yet Saudi Arabia was was en- engaging in a, a completely different type of, of revolutionary change, the sort of revolutionary social change. Mm. I mean, I think people, when people talk about rapid change in the kingdom, um, I think a lot of the time people refer to you know, what's happened in the last couple of years, which of course has been extremely rapid. But if you go back to the 1970s, to the pre, you know, to the sort of and what you know the pre-oil boom, if you like, and if you look at the way that the kingdom has changed from the 70s to now, it's just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when I'm giving lectures in the UK, for example, I always point out that you know Saudi Arabia went from Queen Elizabeth I to Queen Elizabeth II did 40 years, basically. You know, if we think about British history and we think yeah. about what happened here, um, the remarkable thing is is that somehow the kingdom has and the, and the kingdom's diverse communities have managed to actually absorb this type of change. And when I talk to, you know, when I was working at King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals, for example, or Prince Sultan University, and, you know, to, talking to my students about the change or even talking to young people today about the change, it's... It's so interesting to hear them talk about the conversations they have with their parents and with their grandparents and, and you know, who tell them about, you know, the, the lives they used to lead in, in, in a very different country. I mean, it seems like hundreds of years ago, you know, so, so and yet that's just in a couple of generations. So it's, it's, it's remarkable that, 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 that this, 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 this 
trajectory has been so fast in the 70s and yet and then there have been these periods where we've suddenly seen it sort of speed up and when we've suddenly seen sort of rapid changes start to occur but i think that's that's sort of natural because i think that you know you can build you know when the when there was this sort of the huge influx of money you know you could suddenly build hospitals and schools and infrastructure and things like this but sort of changing mindsets and changing social norms of course takes longer um you only have to look at you know the way social norms have changed in the uk for example since the 1970s um it's no different you know every society goes through these these phases but it but i i, I it is it, it of course in saudi arabia i suppose that the speed of that change of course has also been been pushed by the fact that you know the kingdom has got such a young population you know with sort of approximately 70% or whatever it is under 30 years old and um, and the young population that of course have over the years become increasingly well educated a young population that have become more and more interconnected uh, with each other regionally internationally um because of technology uh, because of Saudi Arabia having of course this incredibly high internet penetration of about 92% uh because of the, the the way that social media took off here uh, after 2009 um and and this is this you know, all of this has fundamentally sort of changed the way that these young people you know conduct their daily lives so there's been various factors that have, that have sort of fed into these 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 rapid periods of change and 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 I think in a way you know as I said before we saw king abdullah sort of plant the seeds of a lot of this change and it took a while for some of this to actually sort of to actually sort of happen but the conversations were always there about this as they are today still and and it was only really a matter of time before sort of certain things happened because it actually made sense or economic sense and i i you know people a lot of people talk about vision 2030 as being sort of that watershed moment in a way for for recent change over the last 5 years but actually i think it i think probably more um meaningful was actually the 2014 oil price crash because i think once that happened that you know vision 2030 was actually a, res- a response to the crash um uh, and the crash really was was sort of that sort of forced a lot of change if you like so when women started to work in public in Saudi Arabia in in shops and places like this and you know i'd never seen this in the whole time i was here and all of a sudden you know i never spoke to a saudi woman and for the first 10 years that I was here um and yet now I'm suddenly going to IKEA or Sako which is the equivalent of B&Q you know to buy a hammer and I'm being served by a young Saudi woman you know it's just mm. like whoa you know incredible changes but of course once that happened in 2014 and, and women started to appear in public working everywhere then it was inevitable that the driving thing would happen yeah of because course. it just made it made economic sense so so yes vision 2030 in april 2016 was incredibly important but the catalyst was actually the oil price crash of crash of 2014 mark just just flesh that out for us slightly would you please i mean what were the the stakes of this this oil crash for people who aren't all that familiar with with quite how serious it was I mean, why did this oil price crash prompt such a dramatic uh, reimagining of 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 the future of Saudi Arabia. 
Well, I can give you a very good example, actually, and um, it, it is something that I've mentioned in, in a couple of my papers. But at that time, I was working at King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals, which, of course, KFUPM <coughs> in the Eastern Province, which is right next door to Aramco. And um, the university is the best, you know, in my opinion, the best university in Saudi Arabia um, because it is very specialised and the students who go there go there on academic merit only, not on social connections or WASTA mm. or anything. And, um, of course, the majority of students at that time were studying things like petroleum engineering and chemical engineering because mechanical engineering because the the, the, the the rationale of these courses and these majors was for these young men to feed into um, the Aramcos, the Schlumbergers, the Halliburtons, the oil, the petrochemical industry. And um, without a doubt, these the students at KFUPM are excellent. And um, prior to the 2014 oil price crash, um, a graduate would, on average, be offered six to seven full-time positions before right. he graduated. So he would, you know, he would leave the university, and I would have this sort of option of, of jobs to go into. After the oil price crash, it suddenly went from that to zero, and particularly in some, in some majors, for example, chemical engineering, and suddenly there were no jobs for these people being offered. And this was sort of the cream, if you like. This was the academic elite, and they were not getting jobs. When you suddenly made you think, well, if they're not getting jobs, what's happening lower down the scale? Um, and it was a huge shock because this had never really happened before. And it lasted um, a couple of you know, It was quite bad for a couple of years. Uh, and then it started, obviously, to pick up again, and things got better, but never to pre uh, 2014 levels and of course COVID of course has sort of pushed things back again so you know for, for a lot of young people suddenly this these you know they'd grown up being told that they would you know go to university that they would have a job for life uh, they would have secure jobs that, that this is how it was always going to be um, there was plenty of money oil was always going to be $120 a barrel this type of thing and all of a sudden that was taken away so it wasn't you know, it was it was a, it was a sort of psychological shock, if you like, yeah, um, for many many young people, you know, who suddenly realised that they were going to have to rethink their futures. Um, uh, it, you know, I think you know every cloud has a silver lining, of course, and I think I think there was a silver lining to this, of course, in in that it, it sort of basically made a lot of people wake up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, mm. And and they woke up and they they embarked on a dramatic reimagining of of the the, the sort of social and the economic organisation of, of the kingdom. And you, you've you've covered this extensively in in your work, Mark. And I, I will point people to to that. But if I may say, one of the things that I, I find so so important and so reassuring in in your work is that it's it's not just a focus on the structural dimensions. It's not just to focus on the, the way in which the structural facets of the Saudi state are being reimagined or reorganized, but it's a focus on the people, the Saudis themselves, which I guess relates back to what you were saying earlier on. And it's, it's that focus on agency uh, mm. and young agency, which I think is so, um, so, so powerful. So can you just give us um, a, a couple of examples of, of how 
how these young Saudis, your students, your your former students, have responded to some of these these challenges then of, of waking up to no job offers and and a completely different form of, of, of life after university. Yeah, I mean, well, I, if I go back to say 2000, around 2011, um, after sort of social media started to take off, what was very interesting was that I, in conversations with, with, with young Saudis, whether they were my students or not, I started to hear them talk to me about clubs um, that they belong to <clears throat> online, of course, mm. um, film clubs, book clubs, um, photography clubs. And, and and that was something I'd not heard of before. And, you know, they'd tell me about them. And, and basically, you know, they realized that nothing was being provided for them to sort of, you know, in terms of their interests and what have you. So being young, they thought and um, being very sort of entrepreneurial, they sort of thought, well, okay, we're going to do it ourselves. And so this is what they did. So they started to create these these clubs. Um, so as an example, I had two students who were, although they were engineers, they were very keen artists. They loved to draw. Um, they started sharing their drawings with each other on WhatsApp. That went to a couple of others. And within a year, I think it was, it was 300 of them. And they actually formed a group and they held a big exhibition in um, a Rashid Mall in Koba. This was pre-Vision 2030, which they invited me to. And I was completely shocked at the time because I went up to this exhibition and not only was it mixed, but it was an art exhibition that was mixed with music playing. <laughs> I, was like, you know, I was like, whoa, you know, what's going on Amazing, here? Yeah. But, uh, but so, so, so they started to do all of this. And, um, but what's the significant thing about that, and the reason I'm talking about that now, was that after the oil price crash, um, they started to realize that they could actually monetize their interests uh, and that, that there was, they could start to set up businesses and things like that. And that was the beginning of this sort of entrepreneurial trend that we've seen happen in Saudi Arabia since then and, and become something that's very, very popular. Um, and at the same time, obviously is being promoted by, by, by the government and it is in the Vision 2030 document, for example. Um, and I think the, the, you know, an important point here is that, that in many ways Vision 2030 was, was a response to a lot of this, so that there was a lot of bottom-up things happening um, that were happening anyway. Uh, and that actually it was in the government's interests, it was in the kingdom's interests to sort of actually start to harness this energy and actually start to be you know, sort of put into place frameworks and structures that, that could actually you know, advance this and, and, and tap into this enormous potential because this is what these young people were doing. You know, I'm sure those of you who are listening who, who you know, follow Saudi social media and, and, and Saudi filmmaking or uh, television programs and things like this know all about this sort of you know the fact that these young Saudis created all of this new content for themselves uh, and of course on YouTube became hugely popular for that reason and it's still very popular for that reason because they're, they're, they're very create you know, incredibly creative young people and they started to do this so so so, so Vision 2030 sort of sort of tied into this that that, that was happening and um of course, when the vision was launched in April two, uh, 
2016, um, it, it, it was in response to this and it, it sort of opened that door, if you like, uh, that so many of these young people were waiting for, you know, waiting to be opened. And suddenly mentalities about, you know, sort of about jobs, about employment, about jobs, about the types of jobs that you could do or couldn't do started to change start, and have changed so radically. Um, I remember in some, the summer of 2019, I went out with a group of my former students in, in Riyadh and uh, they now work for STC here and, and I taught them in 2013. And um, I, I said to them, I said, so when, when I was teaching you in 2013 and there was three groups of 40 students that I was teaching at the time, I said, how many of you then either had a part-time job or volunteered? And they said, well, probably nobody. And I said, what about today in 2019, the, the cohort I have of 120 students I have now, how many of those volunteer or have a part-time job? And they said, 70%, 80%? I said, yeah, there we go. Mm. In six years, that change has happened. And that's an enormous change in, 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 in sort of attitudes, in, in, in how you look at employment, how you look at hobbies, all of these types of things. Huge, huge change. And in my opinion, incredibly positive. Yeah, I, these, these changes are, are, are dramatic or existential with regard to everything that you've, you've flagged up. And you, you touch on a lot of these in your, in your wonderful book, which I would... I would urge people to, to get hold of if they want to know more about the, the transformation. But Mark, if I may, there's also the, the change in the debate about the kingdom. For example, if we'd have been having this discussion 10 years ago, let's say, we'd have been talking about the the, the prominence of, of Wahhabism within the kingdom and the reliance on on Wahhabi ulema uh, from the Al, for the Al Saud to gain their legitimacy, or we'd have been talking about sectarianism, or we'd have been talking about um, violent is Islamic extremism, or we'd been we'd have been talking about dramatically different types of things. And I think that's another another example of the 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 almost existential transformation of of the kingdom. Yes. Yes, and a very good example of that is if you look at the interview that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman gave um, on the fifth anniversary of uh, the launching of the vision in April during Ramadan. And he gave that interview at uh, 11 o'clock in the evening and uh, on Ratana, on a, on a Saudi television show. Um, and if you look at the things he's talking about, and who his target audience were during during that interview. You know, he was talking about employment and housing and cost of living and taxation. Uh, and if you like, all of those things that are in the area of low politics yeah. are, are what every young Saudi is discussing. You know, they're not really talking about foreign policy unless they are political science students. But the vast majority of young Saudis are talking about these issues that affect their daily lives and affect their futures and are going to affect the futures of their children. And so the Crown Prince, you know, he, he had tapped into that. He understood that that is what the debate is about. 
uh, and it was very very interesting to see that um, and of course that you know that the interview was very well received inside the kingdom because of that that particular evening of the of the interview i was actually going for um one of my covid vaccinations which i was having at 10 o'clock in the evening because it was in ramadan of course mm. and i went into my office at the king faisal center and uh, young researchers um had the choice of working in the evening if they wanted to and i was in my office and a young female research saudi female researcher came into my office and said oh dr mark are you staying for the interview and i said well unfortunately i can't because i'm going for my vaccination but i'll watch it later and she said oh well she said you know if you're back in time she said we meaning we young female researchers the young women who work for public relations and events we're all having a party in the meeting room to watch the interview and i thought to myself there you go there's the change there's because, the change yeah yeah this first seven years as i said before the first seven years i was here i never spoke to a saudi woman once incredible and now you're yes. getting invited to parties yes, yes exactly <laughs> so you know so so if you you know if you if, if anybody's interested in that they should look at the interview and they should look at a lot of what the crown prince was talking about because it did you know a lot of this actually reflected the concerns of young saudis sure and if you want to know more about those concerns, then you must read Mark's wonderful book, Being Young Male and Saudi, Identity and Politics in a Globalised Kingdom, and pretty much everything else that, that he's done, because it's, it's wonderful, it's fantastic, and it's, it's provocative and, and highlights the dramatic changes that the kingdom is going through. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned a, a lot, as I always do, and it's been uh, it's been really fascinating hearing about the the, the changing nature of, of, of Saudi Arabia. Well, you're most welcome. And if anybody who's listening is passing through Riyadh, then uh, please get in touch. Uh, or if anybody's got any questions or comments or would like to know something, then also please get in touch with me my email is on my webpage on king faisal center website and uh, i'm always delighted to hear from people you're very gracious mark very generous with your time so thank you so much for joining us it's been an absolute pleasure thank you mark a huge thanks to mark for his time just now i should say and that uh, we could have kept this a secret but just as a testament to how gracious Mark really is, this is the second time that we've recorded a podcast, having had some um, rather nefarious audio uh, issues with the first recording, which I guess relates to air conditioning, the, the perils and joys of working in 50 degree heat, I guess. But a huge thank you twice over to Mark. You can find him on Twitter at ThompsonMarkC, that's at ThompsonMarkC, and at the King Faisal Centre for Research website. Do get in touch, he's a wonderful chap, and uh, and, and really is one of the, the foremost experts working on and in the kingdom today. As always, a huge thank you as well to you for listening. Please do like, comment, share, subscribe, do all the things that you normally do. It's now summer. So these are going to be a little bit more ad hoc, but I hope you'll stay with us. Until next time.